0: Friends, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Last week when we were in chapter 3, we highlighted a very important theme that runs through all the pastoral epistles that we'll see come up again and again and again, and that is this, that right believing animates right living. That doctrine, what we believe, what we know, what we think, what we hold to and subscribe to in our Christian life will tease itself out into our hands and our feet and it will affect the way that we live and the way we treat one another. We're not just storytellers, t- we said, according to Van Hooser, we're story dwellers. We live in this same story that we talk about. Well, if that's all true and we see all that in chapter three, we, wouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised to learn from our text this week that the antithesis is also true. If right believing animates right living, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that wrong believing animates wrong living, that if we think and theologize wrongly, that if we believe falsely about the God we serve, that's going to have disastrous consequences for our lives. Let's read this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Father, who created this world and receives it back in worship, I pray that this very physical act of gathering together this morning, of opening our Bibles and listening to your word taught, would turn our hearts to you. I pray that you would change us. I pray that you would mold us into the image of your Son. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we talked about the role of the church as a pillar and a buttress of truth. We are the household of the living God. Well, over and against that, Paul says in our text that in Ephesus and in our church here today, Columbia Presbyterian, there are imposters and pretenders. They come in all shapes and sizes, but they will always dwell with the church while it's in the world. There are those in our midst who do not subscribe to these same things, and it has disastrous consequences for their lives. I want to press into our text this morning and I want to understand these imposters because that will help us cycle back in the end to the truth tellers who are in our midst. Really there's two kinds of imposters that verses one through three describe. It describes those who are deceivers and those who are being deceived. Those who are leading other people astray and those who are being led astray. And I want us to look at each of those in turn. Verse 1 starts with the deceived, those who are being deceived, and says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So these are the deceived. The Holy Spirit is telling us that some are going to be led along by wrong teaching in our midst. They're going to be led astray. And ultimately, this group of people, if nothing intervenes, if there are no miracles, if God and his people do not intercede, the end of the story for those who are being deceived is a complete and a final rejection of the Christian faith. They will depart from the faith. They will devote themselves to what is false. That's, that's the end of the story and the end of the line for the deceived. Now, I suspect that in the life of a person who's being deceived as in everything, it starts with very humble beginnings. It appears in a person's life in seed form. Watch the way Paul talks about us walking our Christian life in this world. He says that on the one hand, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, and he's telling us truth, and he's pointing us to God's Word. But on the other hand, we hear other voices. There are other voices we hear in our head, we hear from around us, and those voices amount to deceptive and demonic spirits, So you remember growing up watching Saturday morning cartoons, Tom and Jerry, and Tom the cat would be thinking about what he wants to do to Jerry the mouse, and on his shoulders would appear two characters, an angel and a demon, a cat demon and a cat angel whispering to him. That's actually not too far off theologically from what Paul is saying right here. We are never alone with our Bibles. Our quiet time when we sit down before the Lord is never quiet. We pick up a passage like 1 Timothy 1.15 and we read Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and then we hear a voice in our minds that says that sounds like it's too good to be true or that might be true for the other nice people in this room but that can no longer be true for me or we hear the voice of Simon's guests at the dinner table who is this that even forgives sins when we hear those voices, I know that it's fallen out of vogue in our post-Enlightenment culture to speak this way, but that sounds to me an awful lot like a deceptive and a demonic spirit. And the more that we hear these voices inside our minds, the more we dwell there, the more we associate people with the who speak those lies to us, the more they lead us to places we do not want to go. That is why we emphasize every single week in this church that that Christianity is a team sport, that it's to be lived out publicly and in community with one another. This is the reason we gather together every Sunday morning to worship. This is the reason that we meet with each other in each other's homes, in life groups, and Bible studies. This is why we grab somebody and get a cup of coffee with them, and ask, what is Jesus doing in your life now? When we do that, we take our Christian life outside of our head, where it's kind of banging around with these other voices, and we put it on the table so that the Holy Spirit can speak to it plainly and clearly. This is so critical for the life of a body of believers to live this Christianity in community and outside of our own heads, because you can begin to spot the person who's going to be deceived, That's the person in our midst right now who is beginning to drift from fellowship. They're beginning to become disentangled and disassociated with this church. They're finding other things to do on Sunday mornings and Tuesday mornings and when their life group meets. And as they drift away, they get more time with these demonic and deceitful spirits than they do with the Holy Spirit, and they are ripe to be led astray. Well, Paul says that's not the only group contending in our midst. These people are being deceived, and it's not just by spirits and demons. They're also being helped along by flesh and blood deceivers. There are people in our midst and in the church in Ephesus who will lead others astray. They're described in verse 2. This teaching and deception comes in part through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So you can spot a person who's ripe for being deceived isolation. They're becoming isolated. But you can spot a person who's a deceiver in our midst, who's leading people astray by a seared conscience. Here's the antithesis that we talked about. If we said that, that right believing animates right living, wrong believing is betrayed by wrong living. When we see people in our midst who are living in ways that are not compatible with the Christian life, when they are rejecting what King Jesus is telling them to do and they're doing their own thing, you root around in that person and you will uncover false doctrine and false belief in their lives. And these are people ripe to be deceivers in our midst. Now Paul is talking about the conscience and this is a a fascinating thing to explore in scripture. But a conscience is something that's given to every single human being. All of us have this innately. We had it since we were born. But when we become a believer, our conscience is quickened and alivened by the Holy Spirit. And it's described in the Bible as a living organism. It has spiritual nerve endings and it's, it's sensitive. It can pick up on things and read things and is sensitive to the things that are happening in our life and in our mind and in our thoughts. All of us have had the experience that we have resolved to do something we know God doesn't want us to do. We, we, we set our minds and our hearts on a sin, and as we approach that sin, we begin to feel this angst in our hearts, right? We begin to feel this, this battle, this spiritual turmoil within us, and we have red flags going off that say, don't do what you're about to do. If you have experienced that, then you know what a conscience is. That's God's gift to you to lead you back to himself. Here's a frightening thought. I want all of us to listen very closely to what God's word is saying here. This should give us pause as believers. If we press through that conscience and if it warns us not to do something, but we do it and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again, that very same spiritually sensitive conscience will become wounded by what we do. It'll be hurt, it'll be beaten down, and it will not be able to respond in the same way that it first responded to our sins. If we blast over this thing and continue to do what we want to do, we will uh, infect and destroy and hurt this living organism in us that's meant to protect us. We will run roughshod over our conscience. Now, Paul talks about this to the church in Ephesus. He writes a letter to the church that he's sending Timothy to, and he says in Ephesians 4.19, he describes the conscience in their midst as being calloused, like it can be so worn down that it develops thick calluses like a foot that steps on so many things that it's no longer sensitive to the things that it's stepping on. Here in our passage, Paul says it's not just being calloused, it's being seared. The Greek word here is cauterized. It's like it's being wounded and cauterized by a hot iron. I've been reading this tremendous novel by Evelyn Waugh, Brideshead Revisited, and it tells the story about the decline and fall of a prominent English family leading up to World War II. And it highlights what's happening to the members of this family as they decline. And one of them, Sebastian, falls headlong into alcoholism. You get halfway into the novel and the protagonist, Charles, is sitting at the dinner table with Sebastian and he describes so well this self-abuse of sin. He says, a blow expected, repeated, falling on a bruise with no smart or shock of surprise, only a dull and sickening pain and the doubt whether another like it could be born. That was how it felt, sitting opposite Sebastian at dinner that night, seeing his clouded eye and groping movements, hearing his thickened voice breaking in ineptly after long, brutish silences. That is what's happening to a conscience when we run into sin, we are bruising it like that blow that falls that no longer smarts or shocks or rings out, but it is a dull and a sickening pain on the very thing that God has given us to plead with us to walk after him. If you take time in your sin, you can see if this is happening to you. If you will pause in your sin, you can know if your conscience is being calloused or seared. Think about it before you sin. That that spiritual angst, that turmoil, that racing heart that you get, those sweaty palms as you begin to walk into something you shouldn't do, that begins to fade in the life of a person whose conscience is seared. There's nothing that stands between you and your sin that you indulge in but silence. Watch out. Your conscience is callous. In your sin, when we commit the sin, we don't blush. And the ways that our guilt used to impinge on our enjoyment of sin, that's not there anymore. We can enjoy it fully and freely. We can get lost into the very thing that we're doing and we don't even think about it until later. If that's happening to you, watch out. Your conscience is being calloused. After our sin, we've committed it. And once upon a time, our repentance of that sin was so fresh and it was so earnest and it was so heartfelt and tearful, but it's not that way anymore. We've done this same thing so many times and so often that the time between our sin and our confession, it just gets longer and longer and longer. And when we do come to the Lord to confess, it's no longer from our heart, it's from our lips. We know we should, and so we do go through the motions of confessing this sin to him. It doesn't affect our hearts and our minds anymore. Ultimately, there's no confession. We tell the Lord Jesus, this is one area of my life that's mine, and I'm not gonna change it. And let's agree to disagree. If that's happening in your or my life, watch out. Our consciences are being seared. They're being calloused. All of this, if this is happening, amounts to that dull thud of pain on a bruise. We are feeling the abuse of our sin. There are men and women in this room right now who are struggling deeply with sexual lust. We may or may not be looking at pornography right now, but our eyes are getting their fill. We get what we want. We'll find it in the prime time PG-13 dribble of television. We'll find it in second looks on the street. We'll find it in watching movies that we no longer turn away from racy scenes. This has become part of who we are and what we do, and we've no longer blushed in our sin. There are people in this room right now who are steeped in greed, we live a life of greed. We grab our money and we spend it on ourselves. We do not give a single dollar to this church. There are people here that don't do that. We've become so accustomed to spending our money on ourselves, we don't blush with that anymore. Maybe the first few times we failed to, to bring a tithe and give it, we felt that guilt, but we felt like nobody noticed it. And over time, spending our money on ourselves becomes part of who we are and we don't blush anymore. As Julie and I were talking about this, we realized that oftentimes this this searing of our conscience happens in very little and small ways. It happens in lust, it happens in greed, it happens in, in sexual and drug addictions, but it also happens in everyday life. When a spouse or a friend comes to us and they confront us with our sin and we respond defensively to that, or worse, we respond with indifference, that's a way to tell the Holy Spirit to be quiet when we waste time, when we just enjoy it to the fullest and and keep it for ourselves, and we don't use it to serve other people in our midst, and the Spirit is telling us to do that, and we tell them to be quiet, we are searing our very own conscience, and we don't even know it. We're ceasing to blush over these very things. In the 90s, a West Coast rapper named Roz once rapped, he mused proudly, I spit rhymes so nasty, I make Lil' Kim blush. Which if you've ever heard a song by Lil' Kim, that's a feat to make her blush. That was the 90s, man. Nobody's blushing today over what you're rapping about. Nobody's blushing today over what we see on HBO or what we do with our money. We're not blushing anymore. We've told the Holy Spirit to shush so many times, we don't even realize whether he is still whispering to us. And all of that in our life, if any of that is true, that is the, th- the sound of a thud, of a blow on our conscience, bruising it again and again and again. Christian brother and sister, I plead with you this morning. I beg you this morning, if you hear anything from the Holy Spirit, hear this, that Jesus longs to receive you back in forgiveness. That this, if any part of this is true of you, If any of this description fits you where you're at in your Christian life, run to Jesus today and confess your sin to him. And don't just confess your sin, but confess your lack of confession. And you will find that the king who is seated on the throne will come to you like the prodigal's father. He'll see you off in a distance. He'll see you fumbling with your repentance and not knowing quite how to word a sin that has entangled you your entire Christian life. And he'll run to you and he'll meet you. And he'll forgive you of that same thing. And he'll forgive you of your apathy for not even caring these years past. Jesus is eager to do that in your life. We had a woman walk up after the service, the first service, and say, "The, the sin that dogs me in my life is apathy. I just... I don't care anymore. I just don't care. And I just gave her a huge hug and I said, the very fact that you're telling that to a pastor is the Holy Spirit in you. He's grabbing a hold of you and he's drawing you and he's making fresh something in your life that you have beaten down so much. We didn't know that there was still life there, but there is because you're here and Jesus is doing this in our midst. He longs to do that for you. Do not walk away from this and keep it inside your own head. Speak to somebody about this. Run to Jesus and find forgiveness in this. Now we're talking about those in our midst who are being deceived and we're talking about the deceivers. And before we close, we need to say a word about the deception that's happening. We hear a a faint description of this in verse 3. We hear that these men are forbidding marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created. Now, we don't know everything about this heresy and deception, but from this description, we know that it's related to Gnosticism. So Gnosticism was an ideology that plagued the church. It became a full-blown heresy in the church. It was alive and well in Ephesus in Paul's day, and it basically taught that the spiritual world is good and the physical world is evil. The spiritual world is where God dwells. He's a spirit. He dwells in the spiritual world. We have access to him through spiritual things, but the physical world, they taught, was not created by God. It's evil. It's tainted. It's fleshly. And that's why these people in their midst were saying, let's avoid marriage. Let's avoid these foods because they're fleshly and carnal things and gods of the spirit. And we should pursue him spiritually. Now, as I was thinking about Gnosticism in the first century Ephesus church, I couldn't think of a heresy that could be more different than what we experience today in American culture. Nobody, nobody, nobody is going to accuse American culture of underindulging in the physical world, right? Nobody is going to look back on this time in our history and say, you know what? Americans just said no to too many things. They're not gonna do that. We're not dealing with asceticism and and abstinence. We're not. We could use a dose of Gnosticism up in here to help us. Um, But actually, our culture's overindulgence in the physical world's When we as Christians dive headlong into our sin, when we indulge, when we gorge, when we feast on these things in private, that's actually a twisted cousin of Gnosticism. Both of these hold the very same tenet close to the heart of the heresy, and that is this, that matter, physical matter, this physical world, matter doesn't matter. When Jesus comes, he saves my heart and my soul, but he better leave my body alone. Both heresies believe that. The spiritual realm is where the action is, not the physical realm. The Gnostics believed that the physical world was to be avoided to pursue the spiritual world. Americans believe that the physical world is to be indulged in because it's, it has no bearing on the spiritual world. Postmodernism, modernism this, this era that we live in, has bequeathed us a deep, an abiding cynicism that makes any kind of talk of spiritual disciplines or delayed gratification laughable. Who's talking about spiritual disciplines? To call someone pious, that's a criticism. That's not a compliment. If somebody's calling you that on the street, that's not a good thing. You don't want to hear that. Our younger generations, like my age and below, and older generations who are reacting to a brand of legalism, we're just not talking about reading our Bibles and praying anymore. We're not practicing the earthy discipline of fasting. Who among us is leaning over to their neighbor and asking, did you prepare your tithe this week? That's laughable. What I watch on television is my business. It's not your business, don't ask me about that. How I spend my money, what I do with my free time, whether I read my Bible or not, that happens all inside of this realm of my private spirituality. Don't you dare ask me about that. Matter doesn't matter to us or so we believe, and we've dived headlong into the exact same heresy, but we've entered it from the back door, and we are not seeing the Christianity that teases itself out into every fiber of our being. Wrong believing animates wrong living. If we wrongly believe that this physical world, all we see and touch is this unfortunate byproduct of a spiritual God, if we wrongly believe that matter doesn't matter, if we believe that what I do in my prayer closet has no bearing on my living room, it will have disastrous consequences for us and this church and the people around us. It could not be further from the truth of the gospel. Look at verse four. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God created every single atom and idea in this world. He sustains all of it and he is proud of his creation. The elements of this creation, if we take them and receive them with thanksgiving, if we enjoy them according to his word and with prayer, all of it, the sum of it, can be pointed back to him in worship. He'll receive it as worship for himself because he is a God who dwells in this physical world and sanctifies it for our enjoyment and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, even now demonic and deceptive spirits are alive and well. They're in this room and they're speaking and they're telling us lies. They're saying to us that we are too far gone in our sin, that there is no hope for us or for our conscience, or that we can continue to live in the exact same way without the light of the Holy Spirit shining on the dark corners of our life. I pray that you would tell Satan to shut his mouth, that we can hear clearly from your Holy Spirit that you will lead us deeper and further into your love and grace and that you will change us. You can do this in our midst. And so we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.